Welcome to Code Talk, the podcast from dzone.com, for developers, by developers. Hey, Dzone, we're here at DevNation 2016 in San Francisco, Moscone, and I'm here with Tyler Jewell. I'm CEO of CodeEnvy, which has um, had some really exciting announcement releases, and, and particularly around on Eclipse J, which um, came out just uh, like a couple months ago. Was that right? Yeah, about six months ago. Six months ago. Okay. Yeah. Time flies. Um, and, and we're going to also talk a little bit about some announcement, announcement that came out today um, regarding a really exciting community-focused or like um, a way of making developer tools for multiple languages as cool as your favorite tool for your favorite language, maybe. Um, so Tyler, I want to just talk a little bit about yourself and, and maybe a little bit about Eclipse J, and we'll go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm Tyler Jewell. I'm founder and CEO of CodeNVy. I'm also project lead for Eclipse J. I've uh, been in the software industry about 20 years. Uh, originally started off in the 90s as a Java guy working at BEA, uh, traveling around the world as an evangelist for them. I really loved the job, wrote books, well-published, well-spoken, uh, very skilled. And I then spent 10 years outside of uh, hands-on programming uh, in product management climbing the ladder. And I uh, got very ill about 10 years later. And after that illness, uh, when I recovered, I wanted to reacquire my technical skills. And I sat down with Eclipse IDE and Java and Maven, dependency injection, the pet store sample application, and I couldn't get it to install and I couldn't get it to compile properly after a number of days of trying. Uh, I was incredibly frustrated at the time. Uh, I thought I had been quite skilled and um, I, I was worried that my skills had certainly aged out um, a little bit, but, but also the technology had just moved on. And this was a you know, very frustrating sort of experience. And it was in that experience where you know the basic idea for Code Envy came to, which was, um, hey, how do we make developer workspaces completely portable and on demand so that all we have to do is give a developer a link, and inside that link is the genetic DNA to recreate a perfect workspace with all of its tools and its source code um, uh, in, ex in exactly the right state that it was so the developer can just pick up where they left off, compile, run, and debug from there. And, and that so was, everyone else would get green with envy when they saw you doing it. That would be that the, the idea. Name, I guess. That's yeah. the name of the idea, but also just to solve problems because every developer on the planet runs into this. You know, it just it didn't work for me, and it's a very frustrating experience for developers. Even developers who are professionals, um, uh, you know, feel have these emotions and experiences with this uh, because we're not all experts on all programming languages that are there. The workspace setup experience. The, the workspace right? setup yeah. and the configuration of it, the yeah. moving the workspace from one machine to another. Uh, no one's an expert. On this, unless you've been working on that one project time and time again. And it's also kind of arbitrary, right? Like you're not understanding the way that computation works just because you know exactly which flags to put in your environmental variables. And things, uh, right? Yeah, and I, I kind of likened it to, you know, developers have been forced to become data center administrators for their laptop. Mm -hmm. You know, so you're installing and maintaining all sorts of different versions of different software. You have to uh, deal with the network and security issues around that just so that you can start writing some code. So, uh, you know, developers have been forced to acquire a lot of skills that they may not necessarily want to acquire um, just so that they can proceed to do their job. Mm -hmm. So uh, we proceeded to you know, work on this portability and virtualization IP in order to allow for this. Um, and we ultimately got the chance to open source that and package it as an Eclipse um, uh, tooling platform. Uh, and in order to get a broader level of adoption, we decided to uh, create a, a next generation IDE on top of that as well um, and open source that with the Eclipse J uh, so that developers had something immediate that they could touch and feel. 
uh, and the Eclipse Foundation designated that a next-gen platform for them, and, uh, and we've been pretty lucky since then because we've gotten endorsements from IBM and SAP, Samsung, and today here at the conference, Red Hat is standing up calling it a strategic platform for them and committing their own employees to become committers on the project as well. That's really exciting. Congratulations on that. And I'll just share one uh, sort of like anecdote. Um, a couple months ago, my wife went to a like a Ruby on Rails coding camp. First time she'd ever done anything like that. I was like, you should go. You're a logical, critical thinker. And they had a whole day just setting things up. Now, they could have done it really quickly, but they were like, you need to spend a whole day figuring out how to set up a dev environment. And she was like, this is nonsense. And I was like, yeah, but you have to do that. And But... But no, this is nonsense, right? That's in a little a way. bit like yeah. the analogy of we're going to bake a pie, so we need you to put it, assemble the oven together. Right. Yes. In some sense, if that's what you have to do, you have to do. But what, that would make you a better baker. Does make you a better baker? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, so this, this notion that um, like you, what you're doing is you're helping developers work on creating things, building yeah. things, actually doing the stuff that you really love to do, right? Yes, that's right. And 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 it's a very powerful concept for developers, but it also has practical uh, solutions for IT departments as well. Um, in that, uh, when you work inside the enterprise itself. Uh, all, all developers at some point in time have experienced the issue of who has root control and root mm -hmm. access. Um, and there's always this uh, uh, sometimes hidden and sometimes very overt tension uh, between uh, the IT department and the developer on who's controlling uh, the development systems. Now, when developers develop on their laptops or their desktops, uh, they tend to maintain control themselves. Um, and IT gets worried because uh, you know, they lack stability or compliance controls and visibility of what's going on with that system. If, if IT sets up a server and forces the developer onto that server, uh, they maintain root control, but they restrict the, the freedom of choice that the developer has for his languages or frameworks. And so inherently, both sides are unhappy with this in that um, uh, if IT tries to control it, they're likely to impact the retention of that talent because that talent's going to leave to go to a place that's more favorable to them. So um, what's nice about having workspaces that are portable this way is that inside those workspaces, we encapsulate um, uh, root access containers. <laughs> and the end user developer has total root act control over that. And they can install whatever they want into that container without having IT to give up operational control of the workspace itself. And so now there's this clean abstraction where, hey, IT, you get the server, you get the workspace permissions and control. But once the developer's inside the workspace, he has root access and he can treat it like it was his own computer right, right there. So it's a win-win. No, that's awesome. It feels like there's like two sort of mind spaces, the mapping of which is software engineering. The first is the human mind, the developer mind, and then the other is the computer mind, and that's IT's job. But, And the latter is taken care of by like platforms as a service and so forth, but the, the developer workspace is a service, right? Putting the developer's mind in its own space is not, is not uh, something that's been handled uh, like universally yet, and it feels like that section, the, the, the developer workspace is the place where context switching can be most expensive, or having to switch yep. over from Creech to like fiddling with the background, is because you can design context switching into your operating system or abstract that away into the, the schedule right. or something, but the developer has a brain, and the brain is, goes into its flow modes and goes out of it, and, and that's, I guess, partly what you're addressing here at the configuration and spin-up level. That's right, right. that's right. You know, I think that, uh, you know, we, we oftentimes associate developers as working on one thing at a time, but the reality is, is that most developers are working on five to 15 things at a time. Mm -hmm. They'll be working on five to seven bugs um, uh, you know, for existing versions that have been shipped, and they might have one or maybe two new versions uh, that they're working on. And, and also, if you're part of an open source community, you might be making contributions back to a bunch of other open source projects. So uh, a developer needs to segment um, uh, and organize his work in, in some sort of way. And, and it's very difficult to do that if you're just doing that on your laptop computer because a lot of the dependencies might have conflicts with each other. Um, there's transitive dependencies which create issues and whatnot. 
Um, so by having a clean abstraction around the workspace and encapsulating it so that each one is isolated, now a developer can get that workspace, put everything that they need into that for each issue or each bug or each project that they're working on and can have guarantees that, um, that there's no conflicts as well on that. I wonder if it would be interesting, and I, I talked to somebody, a cognitive psychologist about this, to do kind of like um, studies about the expense of mental context switching in very subtle ways for developers. Like, for me, I know, like, configuring my ID in exactly the right way. Like, this is silly, but whether I use, like, the dark theme or the light theme okay. makes a big difference, right? And sometimes I'll use the dark theme for some things and a the light theme for other things, right? Sure. Because it sends a signal to me, right? This isolation happens, of course, at the level that you're talking about within different containers in the computer. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of just making sure that that's working for you too, right? Well, that you know, it, it is it open is source that. versus non-open source is a big part of that as well. Well, I think that what's important is that the developer wants to get into his flow, and and when he's in his flow, that means he needs to be distraction-free from the other events that are outside of that. Um, uh, and and each particular issue that he's working on may require a different setup and configuration to to achieve that. So you need that isolation that's there. It's a different part of your brain. It's a different part of your brain. And and you know we've focused a lot of our efforts on embedding the runtimes into the workspace because you know that's a huge part of what makes a developer successful. But um, the IDE also has to be partitioned better as well. And in the classic IDE sense for Eclipse or IntelliJ or Sublime, you have one IDE installed, and that IDE is multi um, multiplexing across many different workspaces that's there. But, but you're still forced into one configuration of the IDE across those workspaces. And even in our system, each workspace gets a completely different custom um, IDE that is served up that can have a completely different custom look and feel or a custom set of plugins is there. And then the user's profile and persona is injected into the IDE after the workspace is activated here. So both sides, like the computer brain and the human brain, have their own isolation. Have all their isolation yeah. on this, yeah. And so this is what you were talking about with Eclipse Chain, demoing some of the... Show me, like, some, tell me some really awesome, most impressive examples of, like, that'll make, make a developer who hears this feel like, wow, I want to feel that kind of goodness. Okay. So, um, you know, first of all, we have this factory concept, uh, which are URLs that uh, within the URL encodes the entire construct of a, a workspace. And so, uh, so one, you can share these URLs with your friends or put them, badge them on your repo, and then somebody comes along to your repo, you click this URL, and they have a development workspace running mm -hmm. with that. And it's got full IntelliSense inside of it, the project tree, the project typing, its own terminal, and the, the user who clicked on that didn't need to know anything. That's one. When you say, like, what, what is encoded there? Uh, so it'll be... It'll be the, the projects, uh, which repos that they come from, um, oh. what's the type of those projects? Is it a C-sharp project, a Maven project, a PHP project? Uh, because project typing then uh, carries with it a custum IDE extension mm -hmm. associated with it. For IntelliSense, um, but all for It could be the language server, and, or, yeah. but it could be something like, um, you know, we have like a Maven plugin, which adds Maven uh, command types, right, okay. for example, yeah. uh, with that. And, and so... Uh, you could so also it's just a URL to share, and then you can see ex have exactly my environment. It's a URL uh, to share that that each person who clicks on it gets a new, a newly generated workspace Instance according to okay. workspace. And I'm curious, how does that work? Is there a large, like you have a hashing algorithm or something, or is it like human readable or? It's um, no, it's a it's uh, we. There's multiple flavors of it. So, okay. so one flavor of it is that if, you know you you give us a configuration and then we give you back a hash code and then you can use that hash code. Mm -hmm. um, another flavor of it is that um, uh, you send to us a repo name like at GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket and we'll go to that repo and infer a workspace definition based upon the contents of that repo. So we'll try to uh, diagnose it. And you can give us certain hints inside the repo and that will uh, will automatically generate the development workspace off of that. 
Um, so you don't even have to have thought it through yourself exactly. That's you right. just need like uh, for this repo or this. Yeah. Yeah. You can you can do something like if you put a, a a code envy Docker file in there, we'll use that Docker file as the workspace runtime as opposed to our default one. Cool. On that. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So you can do things like have guided uh, tours if you know like what Walk Me is. So mm-hmm. we can provision oh, yeah. these workspaces, and then the first time a user goes into it, we can give you four steps like click this and oh, then wow. click that and then go over here, and that's all completely automated. So because um, you feel so stupid after. You spend like an hour trying to figure out those dumb first steps, and you're that's like, right. I wasted an hour of my life for something that was that's incredibly right. easy that somebody could have just pointed to And all you have to, to do is just push that play button. Yeah, right? yeah. That was, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So that's cool. So that initial kind of spin-up expense and the kind of frustration of getting your getting a feel for it is, is taken care of. That's, that's part right. of it. Yeah. Right. And that's partly inference from the repo or that actual like hashing that you do or... Um, from a Docker file, like a custom. You have a, a special format, or no? It's a well. It's any old Docker file, but uh, we we need into those images. There's like four or five things that Chain needs in order to do the chainness on that. And so you have to, um, if you want to use your own Docker files, you just need to add our stuff into that. Okay. Bit. What are those things? Um, so one, you need we, we need to have a JVM installed because we run a mini Che inside of it, and that mm-hmm. mini Che requires Java. Okay. Uh, there are a couple of environment variables that need to be set uh, with, with certain properties. Around Around that, uh, we need to have Bash installed as well. Um, Those are all reasonable. Oh yeah, yeah. they're all reasonable. Um, and if you want uh, SSH access, you need to uh, have an SSH daemon installed as well. Okay. On that. Cool. So ba- basically, that's standard. Yeah. Yeah. How did you? So you mentioned sort of the journey, like the, the broad journey for coming up with this idea, this kind of providing this sort of service. Um, Eclipse Chain, in particular, like what made you decide to? A, make it like work with Eclipse Foundation, and B, come up with the specific feature sets that that you have come up with that you released like six months ago. So uh, it was it was driven out of a of a commercial need of it. Uh, so uh, our our commercial strategy at CodeNVI is to sell um, to enterprises, and uh, uh, in order to get to enterprises such as Siemens or BMW or um, you know uh, financial services or whatnot. Uh, Uh, we're going to walk in and we're going to ask them to fundamentally change their development process um, to support this different approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're only going to do that if they believe that the approach is valid and verified. Um, And so we're talking about development environments here. So we're going to, you know, we recognize that we needed to have potentially millions of examples of uh, these workspaces running in all sorts of different configurations at scale and high security before we can get into some of these big enterprises that will buy in bulk, like say, we're going to lay down a code NV infrastructure for our entire organization. Um, uh, it is impossible to build that sort of ecosystem going door to door on your own as a startup. Um, so it became very natural for us to be able to say, hey, you know, the, the workspace portability IP, we want broad adoption of that, and then CodeNV can be the IT operational system. So let's open source that. And um, the Eclipse Foundation had a, a legacy product that's now like 15 or 16 years old. Um, it's getting pretty big. Uh, it has its own limitations. And so this was a perfect complement to that. And, um, and so when they were willing to welcome us in, they saw the value proposition of that and, and worked closely with us, it became a win-win. Uh, because they have a five million user audience base that we could um, learn from. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them are willing to give back because they've given to the Eclipse product to begin with. 
and uh, a good portion of that, their particular audience are employees within the enterprises that we ultimately want to sell to. Right. So we can give this, package this up, give it as a desktop IDE, even though it's a, a cloud system, um, give it away for free, and really encourage them to give us individual adoption. And, and that builds the credibility on a large scale that we need to go back and do commercial arrangements. And so far, that's working well. We had, a, we've had 250,000 downloads in the first six months. Wow, that's awesome. Congratulations on that, too. Yeah. Um, any kind of feedback you're getting from this already? Um, a, a lot of the feedback is give us more, give us more on it. Uh, so, you know, a, a lot of people are setting this up for, you know, small teams. I've got three developers or I've got seven developers here. So a lot of work group development mm -hmm. experiences. Um, uh, as you can imagine, uh, it's getting installed in all sorts of interesting data center configurations. So lots of weird, you know, I have this firewall configuration or what about this proxy server um, and getting it to work in that sort of scenario. Um, but beyond that, a lot of pressure to add more programming languages, thus the language server protocol, and getting the workspace runtimes to be as close to production runtimes as possible, thus the support for Docker Compose that mm -hmm. we're announcing here. As I well. see. Okay. Right. So there's two things that have to follow up on immediately. One, and, and both of them actually have to do with this sort of componentization, modularization, and kind of community dependence yep. that, that you're kind of driving. First is that language server um, business. And that's really exciting to me because it really does feel like, um, again, coming from like a C sharp background, um, you have to give up IntelliSense, or maybe you have to give up IntelliSense, or people who come from an IntelliJ background are like, you know, I have to give up IntelliJ. And then there's, there's yeah. ways of adding to that and expanding language right. sharper and things. But it's, it feels like there's a whole bunch of silos that have to build a lot of bridges back and That's forth right. to each other manually, right? And yeah. then you're depending on Microsoft or on JetBrains or something. But this this is different. This Can you tell me a little bit about how this, the idea here and the, also how it works? So so 10 years ago, uh, any, anybody who had produced a programming language did so because they had a strategic platform goal around that language. And so, uh, you know, Microsoft saw C Sharp and F Sharp as strategic uh, wedges to get people to lock into their underlying platform. Same thing with companies that advocated Java. And so as a result, you saw these very verticalized tools that would be built specific to a language. And we saw it for PHP, and we saw it for uh, with, with Zend, uh, we saw it for Ruby on Rails, um, we, we saw it with uh, Java, with IntelliJ, and, and that, that strategy was very logical at that point in time. Uh, the advent of microservices and this inevitability that people feel as we work towards those microservices polyglot, polyglot, uh, is, is going to be entirely a polyglot world. Yeah. Um, and, and with that polyglot world, um, the strategy of the vendors who used to cherish these programming languages have shifted to be more uh, polyglot infrastructure. And that you know, uh, you know, they want to own the infrastructure that supports any potential architecture that a developer may want, and give the developer total choice. So, so once they you know make that mindset shift, suddenly having deep tool lock-in bound to a particular language starts instead of working for you, it works completely against you, mm -hmm. and and you quickly come to the realization that you want to be able to be a polyglot development tool, mm -hmm. and and you can't do that if every programming language on the planet has a completely different protocol for how you get IntelliSense. Mm -hmm. IntelliSense is essentially the same for every language that's out there. We have two general classes of languages. We have in, interpreted languages and we have compiled languages, and and within each of those languages, you know, 90% of you know what you could potentially do is identical there. And I just read the like the LSP spec briefly on GitHub, and it's very straightforward. It's like really for straightforward. each language, it might get complicated, but very straightforward. Yeah, and you know, so the, there there is a, a basic common denominator that works across the different languages, and then for the things that are specific to the language, you can go outside of that here. Uh, but for those languages, you know, um, Eclipse Che, we we had been implementing a protocol of our own that was JSON based um, for Java, and we were taking Java, putting RESTful wrappers around it, and remoting it. 
here. And we had a very kind of slick and elegant protocol for that. Independently of this, uh, VS Code had started on their own protocol. It wasn't remoted. It was all local running, but it was still JSON. Mm-hmm. And, and it turns out that you know the, the, the protocols were not that far apart. And and so perfect opportunity uh, perfect to actually op- come up with a standard to, to, to co- yeah. come up with a standard, consolidate around it, and 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 then once you have two or three tools that support the standard on the client side, then then it encourages the languages to go there because now as a language provider, I can implement one standard and get access to multiple tools mm-hmm. as well. So it's a it's a win win in, in that, in now that, that case. The remoting versus local seems like a difference. Right. It's a huge. So Che is the only product I know of that does the remoting of okay. it here. So so what we do is we take the language server. Uh, you know, we'll install it into your workspace, which is running in a server somewhere, and then we put our RESTful wrappers around that. Um, and the RESTful wrappers still underlying do the JSON to the language server, but uh, we we then just you know push it over WebSockets back up to the browser experience. And that's really fast. Yeah, like, you do. Yeah, everybody asks like, "Oh, isn't the performance gonna be really bad?" But I, I can bring it up, and it's like, you know, our Java stuff is as fast as IntelliJ. Right, right. I mean, so I, I'm wondering uh, two things about that. One is, is there any kind of snapshotting or versioning on this? Right. So on the language server. Yeah, because uh, not on the language server, but on the workspace. Yeah. So what I mean is that, um, like, uh, what if you're using like an older version of Java for whatever like compliance reason or something like that, and then the remote server starts changing a little bit because it wants to support the latest version? Um. TBD. Okay, yeah, not a, not a huge deal. Just that, especially in certain industries, people will stick with really old stuff. And, yeah. But on the but then you know anytime this is this is always true with any kind of like client server division, sure. right? Um, and then um, the other is um, uh, the actual like repository of languages. Right now you've got C Sharp, you've got Visual Basic, you've yeah. got you guys did Java, right? Well, we did Java. There's Omni Sharp out there. Okay. You know, Raml's going to be done by MuleSoft. Okay. Uh, we've got TypeScript from Microsoft. Um, I believe I believe IBM is going to do JavaScript with their Orion Turn implementation. On okay. Uh, Xtext, which is a framework for writing your own DSLs, um, is there, and so now you can write a DSL, and then that DSL will generate um, all the IntelliSense that works in this system right away. Oh, interesting. So now you can write a you know basic language and get um, the tooling oh. for it without having to do any overhead on it. That actually would make DSLs potentially quite a bit cheaper to implement, sure. right? Because sure. there's no spin up, just dot, and yeah. then you've got your stuff. Like uh, Sven demo today, like he, he, you know, he created a, uh, a data, a, a data DSL, and he was creating these entities, and the entities then had all, all the intelligence, like syntax highlighting, autocomplete. Um, it was all ready to go. Oh, that's beautiful, yeah. interesting. Um, so uh, it seems like there will be some kind of movement that it'll have to be some time to like develop these databases, and somebody's going to have to maintain them. And it's not that much, yeah. not that much. We're going to build a it's... registry for it. Okay. You know, so like it would be like the equivalent of npm or um, a NuGet or a Maven mm-hmm. uh, central, but specific for language servers. Um, this this will not be hard. Like you know, with npm and Maven, there are. I guess millions of libraries in there, and they're constantly being versioned. You know, so it's a big, massive system. But you know, if there, if we get to be a hundred language servers, I mean, we've we've dominated the planet here. Right, and so, the languages don't change that fast either. Well, so. there's probably they probably version a lot, mm-hmm. but there's not just going to be that many different language servers that really matter at the end of the day. So, so it, what it, what really matters here is not on the sophistication of the registry. But more on can we make it really elegant that any IDE can connect to this registry and then inform the user, hey, there's a language server for the project that you're working on, and then quietly install it. Right. Um, uh, you know, so that the user just inherits these benefits without going through kind of a complicated setup sequence. Now, one thing I'm envisioning here is just like a kind of um, 
really easy education for developers in a new area for a new language when you've got this kind of language server. Yeah. And I guess I'm thinking of like years ago when my first like, and I was at the keynote I was thinking about this. Like my first like really satisfying domain experience was um, a bunch of VBA on an access database. Okay. Like 15 years ago, and I kind of learned that by just writing some code and then hitting period and then seeing what popped up, yeah. right? And I was like, oh, it's it's recognizing types. That's really cool. And and oh wait, I defined that. Ah, stuff like that. It just became that sort of interaction, like poke it and see it becomes very easy for trying a new system out, right? Many, many cases for these new languages, you don't have to think really differently. I'm thinking of different JVM languages, sure. except in certain areas, right? In those certain areas, maybe you need to well, I stretch think it, your mind. I think but. it certainly helps in that um, uh, each IDE presents certain information in a different way. Uh, so how do you initiate autocomplete, right? It's not always control space. Um, uh, when you hover, the, where the information is displayed and how it's formatted, um, you know, is it documentation? Uh, what's a warning marker? What's an error marker? Um, how do you deal with the resolution of that? Where, where do you find the refactoring? So, so once you get one language and you get familiar with how the tool lets you um, learn these signals, then when you go to a new language and you're getting the same signals there, you can embrace, you know, you can embrace it that much more. You've developed the learning habits, yeah. and then it's just yeah, various language. Yeah. One last thing on that specific on the mechanics of the uh, of like a universalized IntelliSense or something like that. Um, so different languages. So one of the cool things is the code lens feature, right, where you can see like the history among other things, like the history of a little bit of code. How much that's useful varies a lot on how heavily you've refactored and, and that sort of thing, okay. right? So. Can you give a sense of like, for is there a way that you're envisioning developers are going to change their their refactoring or their debugging workflows if this language server protocol becomes well supported by all IDEs for all languages, um, or is it basically no, I, you're I think, used to IntelliJ think, so you're good? Yeah, I think that the development style of the developer will, will stay pretty much the same here. Mm -hmm. I, I think what it will do is it's going to make developers feel more comfortable about experimenting with different languages for uh, for different you know. Right, and different IDEs? Or? Uh, potentially even different IDEs, yeah, yeah. sure. It's pretty good if they know that they're getting you know, one language following them from one tool to another. Yeah. yeah. Just to push one step further, though, um, what then is the next kind of... You mentioned that you have this, this like a commercial interest in actually getting a ton of like community feedback and refining yeah. Eclipse J and things like that. Um, is that like the real, the, like the central focus for you guys for a while, or do you have other kinds of... So we're about 50 people, and um, at any point, 40 of them are working on the open source stuff oh. here. We, we, we're fortunate in that we have one of the few business models where we are open source and closed source, like Code is closed source and, and Che is open source, but that the entire success of Code Envy is tied to the success of the open source. Um, and the only difference between the two products is essentially, you know, Che is a, a single server product, and Code Envy is a, 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 you know, an elastic, uh, multi-tenant version mm -hmm. of the same, same thing. Um, and when you're dealing with development environments, uh, you know, uh, 10 users who each want to have 10 workspaces that are 8 gigabytes each, you, you quickly go from, you know, uh, you know, well beyond what a single server should reasonably be able to handle. And you're instantly into, hey, I need to now lay down a cluster um, and manage this as a, as a single system. And you get into some environments where we think potentially about 5,000 employees um, all developing, you know, 24 hours a day on right. that. You're talking about some big massive systems. So, so for us, we, we have a huge incentive to make Che a wonderful single-user experience, and, and we don't need to commercially benefit from that because if it is a wonderful single-user experience and it's doing really well, the team um, and organizational purchase be, flows naturally from that. Right. No, that's interesting. That makes sense. So the infrastructure is going to be 
big enough and significant enough. That it's, it's complicated enough where you know um, some of our customers do run like chafe farms. You know, oh, I'm just going to deploy 20 of these things. And sure, you can do that. We totally love you for doing it. But you know, at some point in time, that is, it, it's just really complicated to try to, man, to manage that. As opposed to let's just lay down one infrastructure that manages it all. For yeah, us that. that makes sense. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add that you'd think the uh, the Zone readers should check out or be excited about or? News well, I share. think that we now have 70 contributors on the project. We're definitely trying to grow that, um, uh, and we're looking for new ways to like stretch and customize the project. So we really want to encourage people to get in and start participating in GitHub and, and see what they can do with it. Cool. All right. Thank well, thanks you. a lot. Yeah, that was awesome. Thanks for listening. To hear more, go to dzone.com slash podcast. If you have any comments or questions or would like to request a guest to appear on the show, email me at johnny at dzone.com. That's J-O-H-N-E at dzone.com. E-O-F.